Well, have you ever looked into the eyes of something or someone truly powerful? How did you react? Slightly out of breath, perhaps. Lost for words with butterflies in your stomach and trembly knees. Uh, many years ago, I spent a few days in an elephant sanctuary in Thailand. This is a photo of me from 2008. And I had that kind of reaction the first time I looked into the eyes of the bull elephant I was to look after during my stay. He towered above me, weighed several ton, and essentially was a wild animal with a mind of his own. He was powerful and terrifying. After that first encounter and spending a few days with him, of course, I actually started to forget how very big and powerful he was. It was only when I asked about a small wound on his side that I was reminded. Uh, the previous week, this enormous elephant had decided to run away from his mahout, the man who looked after him, probably as a game, but in a sanctuary full of tourists, he had to be shot with a tranquilizer so that he wouldn't hurt or kill anyone. It was a sobering reminder I was right and sensible to fear this elephant's mighty power. It's probably easy for us to appreciate the power of a wild animal and fear it. And some people with great authority can cause this reaction as well. But it might be, it might be more uncommon for us to see Jesus in this way. It's definitely true that in the Gospels we have many accounts of Jesus' kindness and gentleness towards people he calls himself a shepherd, cradling the lost sheep against his chest, as well as a mother hen longing to gather Israel under his wings. On a personal note, many, many of you may have experienced Jesus' comfort when you've been hurt and grieving as I have. And how revolutionary this is when we're reminded again and again uh, that men and women often assert authority by displaying violence and dominance. But the spectacular thing about Jesus is, it, is that he isn't just gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He's more complicated than that. Uh, Dorothy Sayers was an author and contemporary of C.S. Lewis, and she puts it like this. The people who hanged Christ never, to do them justice, accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It's been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. Jesus is meek and mild, but he's more than that. Jesus is the most spectacular, powerful, complex person you'll ever meet. The last thing you'd call Jesus is boring. And as we experience the events that Matthew tells us about in today's passage, we'll see more of his identity as the saviour who is powerful and to be feared. And so the question to ask ourselves is, do we fully see Jesus' power and fear him? Well, up to this point in the gospel, uh, Matthew has recorded how Jesus performed miracles of healing and taught with authority. So the crowds are flocking to him and are amazed. But there have also been hints that Jesus' identity may be more than that of healer and teacher. Uh, Jesus has announced that in his ministry, the kingdom of heaven is near. 
And Matthew points out several times how Jesus' healing miracles fulfill the words of Isaiah the prophet about the Messiah to come. As readers of Matthew's gospel, the questions should be building. Who is this man? And then we come to today's passage, Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. Uh, Jesus has decided to cross to the other side of Lake Galilee with his disciples. The crowds have been pursuing him, and Jesus has been working hard, teaching, healing, responding to the questions and needs of these people who are following him. And so he gets into the boat with his disciples and falls asleep, obviously completely exhausted. We see that Jesus experienced exactly what we would after days of constant demands and stress. He is human, after all. But then the weather takes a turn. Uh, the geography of the Lake of Galilee means that storms can come up very suddenly. A furious storm with the force of a hurricane comes down on the lake. And the storm is so sudden and so powerful that the waves are sweeping over the sides of the boat and filling it with water. Imagine the wind is raging, thunder and lightning uh, crack directly overhead. The rain is so heavy, you can't tell which way is up or where the sea stops and the air begins. The sails are whipped out of the disciples' hands as the boat leans dangerously to one side. And the very structure of the boat creaks with the force of the elements pounding against it. The disciples are terrified, convinced they're about to drown. But Jesus is still asleep. And so the disciples wake him, crying out, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. It's easy maybe to miss the strangeness of this. At least four of the disciples are fishermen. And the Lake of Galilee was where they worked, where they fished since they'd been children. They would have known it like the back of their hand. And with this vast professional experience, these men cry out to Jesus to save them. Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, a small town 25 kilometers from any large body of water. It makes no sense. The disciples may not yet have a clear idea of who Jesus is, but they know there's something about this man that he might be able to save them. Well, Jesus wakes up and in the midst of imminent danger, first turns to the disciples and ask them, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Why don't you trust me, he says. I've shown you my power to heal. I've taught with real authority. I've done things and said things that should have tipped you off to who I am. You should have trusted me. Well, Jesus then gets up, rebukes the winds and the raging sea, and the storm stops it instantly becomes calm. Uh, I had a teacher in year one, Mrs. Donnelly, who with her voice and her slightly terrifying presence could instantly calm the noisiest class of five-year-olds. Well, even more easily than that, Jesus addresses the wind and the waves like an unruly class of children and tells them to settle down. He expects the weather to obey him and it does. What would happen if during the last week of insane weather you decided to go down to Blackwattle Bay or out to the coast and you yelled out to the storm, be still? What would happen? Nothing. 
Controlling the weather is not something a normal human can do. Well, Jesus' actions here might have reminded the disciples of our Old Testament reading uh, from Psalm 107, which talks about God's total power over the wind and the waves. For the Lord spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. With the same power that God shows in Psalm 107, Jesus shows by stilling the storm and hushing the waves. The disciples are understandably amazed. They're in the presence of someone who has just done what only God can do. They'd come to Jesus to be saved from the storm, but apparently they weren't expecting this. What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. He's obviously more than just a man, but who is he? What seems almost as soon as the disciples have have survived one waking nightmare, they sail right into another one. Uh, They arrive in in the Gadarenes, a Gentile region across the lake from Galilee where Jesus' ministry has focused on so far. And as soon as they land, Jesus is met by two men possessed by demons. Now, the disciples have just been through a real-life version of the uh, disaster film, The Perfect Storm, and now it looks like they've walked into a real-life version of The Exorcist. Uh, Matthew uses language that he hints at the desperate, tragic state of these men. They live among the tombs and were so violent that no one could get near them. They're homeless, driven away from their families, filled with hatred and striking terror into the communities nearby. They're being destroyed by the demons that possess them. And they're not even in control of their own words, uh, with verse 29 making clear that it's the demons that speak to Jesus from the mouths of these broken men. It seems impossible that anyone could tame or overcome them. And yet, right from the beginning of this encounter, it's clear who has the power. This isn't a battle between equals. It's not like an evenly matched Australian Open tennis final. This is more like Roger Federer versus Billy Collins, Greg and Jackson. There's no way Billy is returning even one of Roger's serves. The demons are powerless before Jesus' authority and they shout at him in terror, what do you want with us, son of God? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? While Jesus' disciples saw him calm the storm and are still asking, what kind of man is this? The demons recognize him instantly. They recognize Jesus' divine power, that he's someone they should be afraid of. And they know that Jesus' arrival signals the beginning of the end, the appointed time when the forces of darkness will be completely and finally banished. In his interaction with the demons in this story, Jesus foreshadows what happened in his defeat of Satan on the cross, as well as what will happen at the end of time when Jesus will return and banish evil forever. Well, finally in the story, the demons beg Jesus when he drives them out to send them into a nearby herd of pigs. And so with a single word, Jesus commands the demons to go. 
helpless to resist, the demons leave the men, enter the pigs, and the entire herd rushes down the steep bank into the lake and dies in the water. It's pretty shocking and maybe even seems unethical to us. Jesus has just allowed the demons to destroy a large group of animals and probably someone's livelihood. While the passage doesn't really address these concerns, we do see that getting rid of evil is costly. Jesus transfers destruction and death from the men to the pigs so that the men's lives are saved. These people are much more valuable to Jesus than a herd of animals. Well, again, this echoes Jesus' coming death on the cross. Getting rid of evil once and for all was costly. Our salvation cost Jesus his life as the death we deserve was transferred to Jesus and his life was given to us. Uh, This miracle might also raise other questions for us today. What's the deal with demon possession? Is this a story we're meant to take literally or did these men have some sort of undiagnosed mental illness? Well, the Bible definitely treats demon possession as a different thing to sickness, to mental illness with multiple examples in Matthew and the other Gospels of Jesus healing and casting out demons. Even today in some parts of the world, uh, occasionally even in Australia, Christians tell stories of encounters with satanic powers and demon possession. Just yesterday, I was reading an email from a missionary friend working as a speech therapist in another part of the world, and she shared a story of a patient who was possibly demon-possessed. With our worldview that prioritizes science and rationality and ignores the spiritual sometimes, perhaps we can too easily dismiss these kinds of stories. But here in Matthew, we see Jesus confront Satan's minions, a very real terrifying representative of the dark powers in the spiritual world. And Jesus wins in straight sets. The demons can't even put up a fight against his complete authority. Well, immediately after this dramatic scene, those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And instead of thanking Jesus for restoring these broken men to the community, they plead with him to leave their region. Uh, We're not told exactly why. It could be partly that they're afraid of the economic costs Jesus could bring after the livestock deaths that have already happened. But I think it's more likely that the crowd recognise that here is a greater power than the supernatural power of the demons. And they're terrified. Like the disciples on the lake, the crowd gets a glimpse of Jesus' true identity, his total authority, and they don't know how to handle it. In these two episodes, we get a vivid picture of Jesus' mighty power over creation and over spiritual forces. What kind of man is this? A man like no other with the power of God, a man who is God himself. And so we return to our question from the beginning. Do we fully see Jesus' power and fear him? 
because we can look at our lives, at our worlds, and be overwhelmed by our circumstances. When the storms of life terrify us, do we trust the one who wields total authority, or do we forget the one who holds us? After all, I'm not denying that the deadly storm and the destructive power of the demons were legitimately terrifying. We'll all go through things in life that are legitimately terrifying. When a family member who doesn't know Jesus falls seriously ill, when it looks like we might lose our job and therefore our salary and financial security, when war or disease or poverty threaten our world and even our families and us personally. And unlike the disciples and the demon-possessed men, sometimes we're not saved from these experiences. Sometimes they overwhelm us. But even then, even in the darkest pit, Jesus is in control. Because Jesus calming the storm and casting out the demons were really only temporary acts of salvation that pointed forward to Jesus' ultimate act of power and salvation when he died on the cross and rose again. Even when Jesus doesn't save us from a particular situation, we can be certain that Jesus is more powerful than that situation. We can trust him. We can trust him knowing that he loves us and has already saved us from destruction and death. Uh, perhaps you've never really encountered Jesus like this before. This shattering personality who binds up the brokenhearted and tells off a hurricane. Who spends time with little kids and confronts the supernatural forces of evil. Without this Jesus, the fate we face is worse than the deadly storm on Lake Galilee. And our state is more hopeless than that of the demon-possessed men. Our world and each one of us individually have rebelled against God's wise, loving rule, which means that we need Jesus as our saviour, or else we will meet him as our judge. If we don't seek refuge in Christ as our rock, we'll be crushed by the terrifying force of his judgment. And the wonderful thing is, all we have to do, and all we can do is come to Jesus in our desperation and confess our need for him. And he will come to us by his powerful spirit and be with us. Uh, Jesus is powerful and he's also good. So we can be certain that when we seek refuge in him, he will save us so that we can live joyfully for him. Uh, let's, let's sing together now at the glories of our God and King and the triumphs of his grace. Please stand.